I mean, it reminded me of how, how I grew up. I mean, I, I have conversations with my kids all the time where I find myself saying, I wish you could grow up the way I did. Some version of that sentence of playing kickball in the street. Feeling like our streets, our public realm, our safe and inviting places should be a fundamental right for us all, all ages and abilities, regardless of our socioeconomic status, and yes, regardless of the color of our skin. Sadly, this is clearly not the case. The intro to this episode of the Active Towns podcast has a different tone. How could it not? Our world has shifted on its axis yet again. The unrest of the past weekend in the wake of the senseless death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and so many others has rocked us to the core. Yes, 2020 has been an interesting and devastating year. First, a worldwide pandemic killing hundreds of thousands of people, near complete economic collapse and mass unemployment, and now this. This. We are faced with the harsh reality that racism exists and that it is and has been pervasive all along. In evolutionary biology and sociology terms, I understand that our tribes provided tremendous survival advantages in bygone primitive eras, but we are or should be well beyond primitive times. And now our survival as a nation and dare I say, as a species requires us to acknowledge, understand and move beyond our reflexive tendencies towards tribalism, so as to not continue to devolve into violence and all-out fascism. I acknowledge that mine is a position of privilege. I'm white, male, well-educated. I get that. And I get that I am racist. I am tribal. We all are to some extent. It's human nature, but that doesn't mean it's right. It is, and it will be hard work, but I commit to you that I will strive to do better, strive to end institutional racism and specifically end the violence against black people, people of color, people who don't look like me. And yes, I will vote to elect leaders that will do the necessary hard work to do the same. With that said, I think it's important for me and for those of us in positions of privilege to listen more and strive to truly understand. Earlier this week, Jeff Wood, a previous guest here on the Active Towns podcast, published a short episode on the Talking Headways podcast that captured the pain we're going through, through the voices of black mayors and other officials faced with simultaneously supporting the protests for justice while containing the violence and destruction of their cities. I highly recommend that everyone take the time to listen to this episode. You can access it on his website at the Overhead Wire or simply search for Talking Headways on your podcast player platform. I am, we all are, tribal. That's natural. It's part of why and how we form teams. This movement, the Active Towns movement, is about creating safer, more inviting environments which promote a culture of activity for all ages and abilities for everyone. We should all feel safe and welcome playing kickball in our neighborhood streets. 
Thank you for listening and thank you for being here. And thank you for being part of this movement, this effort to create a culture of activity for everyone in our communities. This episode featuring Kevin Shepard with Verdunity was recorded a few weeks ago on Earth Day, April 22nd. Yes, I know that seems so, so long ago, but the themes we discuss are timeless and in fact, hauntingly quite relevant to what we're experiencing now. I hope you find it informative, helpful, and enjoyable. Okay, well, this is John with the Active Towns podcast, and I am absolutely delighted to have online here Kevin Shepard. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing well, sir. So, Kevin, where are you at right now? I am physically sitting in Rockwall, Texas, which is a, dare I say, suburb of the Dallas area. We're just uh, about 30 miles east of Dallas. We moved out here, gosh, back in, I think it was around 2001. And when we moved out here, it was, it's still a small, fairly small community. We're probably 40,000 now, but we really liked it because there's Lake Ray Hubbard out here and you kind of, as you, you leave downtown and and that you come across the lake and it had more of a small town kind of relaxed feel to it. But we'll probably get into this in the conversation, but talking about when, when growth hits your community, well, growth has hit our community. And so it's, there's still some things about it that I, that I do like, but it's turning, it's, it's rapidly turning into anywhere USA as well. And some of those struggles that you, you have, that you have with that, but we've, we've enjoyed living out here. And as far as suburban communities go, we do have a we do have a pretty active, active community, active living with the lake and a, a pretty good parks and trail system too, which I have a feeling we'll get into talking about some of that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely do that. So let, let's talk a little bit uh, about the fact that we are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the Dallas area is being hit pretty hard. Gosh, how are you guys doing up, up there in Rockwall? Um, our office is based, based in Dallas. I haven't seen our office in several weeks. <laughs> I wish I wish we could. Um, but you know, overall, it's um, we're doing well. I think we're Rockwall County is the smallest county in the state, and so you know we haven't seen we haven't been hit as hard as as other parts of the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex. But it is starting. We're starting to see the counts go up as well. You know, one of the things I've been looking at from the fiscal perspective that you know, that, as you know, I, I kind of geek out on, um, but it, you know, is, is Rockwall is a heavy sales tax community. We, which in good times is, is a blessing. You, you get a lot of, of revenue from that and it, it allows you to keep your property tax down. But in a time like this, we're, we're getting hammered pretty hard. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how the, the fiscal situation, the budget of the city is going to play forward, uh, in the next, you know, one, two, three years as the after effects of, the, the fiscal after effects kind of come through here. But, you know, as far as the day-to-day living, it's been, it's actually been an improvement. We, my wife and I were sitting on the back porch, we were eating dinner with our kids the other night. And I heard voices that I've never heard in the 17, 18 years that we've, that we've lived here. And, you know, people are talking and throwing balls over the fences and you're seeing way more people out walking and biking. It's kind of, you're, you're seeing the neighborhood experienced, I think is, the original intent was um, without without all the cars, which is a, a very different way to experience our our community. 
Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that you just said there that I want to circle around to. One is that you said it's the smallest county. Now, is that in geographical terms or in terms of population? Geographic? I don't think it's population because there's some out in, you know, West, West Texas out in the panhandle that are a lot bigger geographically, but probably have, have fewer people. Um, But geographically, we're the smallest. I mean, if you, if you look at a, at just a map of Texas and all the counties, you'll you'll find a little square that's east of east of Dallas, and that's that's us. But at the same time, we're I think we're this we have been the first or second fastest growing county in the state for six or seven years in a row. Got it. I want to amplify one thing that you had had mentioned, and that was hanging out in the backyard, and then also talking about out in the front yard, out getting on the streets, that that sociability that you're seeing. Sounds like you're seeing a little bit of that neighborliness happening out in the front yards, which may look a little different than mine. Yeah. We're you know, we're seeing in both the front and the the front and the back. We're just to kind of describe our street a little bit, you know, we're rear entry. So we've got alley, we've got an alley in the back, our garage is in the back, and then in the front we've got probably a 30 31 foot, 31, 37 foot wide street. So it's, it's, a, it's a typical suburban design neighborhood. All the, all the backyards are, are fenced in. And, you know, pre-COVID, you, the only activity you would really see in the front was the cars screaming by and, you know, maybe a little bit of activity on the, the sidewalks, but, but not a whole lot. And in the backyards, you know, that tended the, the first people we ever met when we moved into our, our house, we, well, we built our house out here. So we were one of the first out here, but there's an existing neighborhood just right across the alley from us that was built probably 15 years earlier. Uh, but the first people we met when we moved out here were actually across our alley because they were the ones that we saw when we were pulling in and out of the driveway, unloading groceries, you know, getting the, you know, getting the lawnmower out to do the yard, those, you know, those kind of, kind of things. It's also been, you know, as my kids have grown up, that's been the place that the very first time they ever got on a bike was in the driveway, um, not on the sidewalks. That changes the, the bigger, you know, the, the older they've gotten and the better riders they, they got to be. But, but yeah, now there's, you still see them more like with our immediate neighbors, the, the interaction is more in the alley and across the fence in the back of the house. In the front, in the street, you're definitely seeing more biking and walking. We've done a lot of, there's been a lot of activities, things like scavenger hunts for the kids where one day will be like a, a bear day and people will put, either put stuffed animal bears or pictures of bears in their windows or in their landscaping and kids go around and try to count how many they can find. I'd like to see more activity in the front of the houses for sure. Yeah. How accessible is your village center to to you from from where you're at? Can you and the kids jump on bikes and and get down to the the village center? We we can. Um, Rockwall's got a good kind of a good core downtown. They they made some improvements to it uh, several years back. It's an interesting downtown because we actually have r- right on the corner where our our historic courthouse is is actually the intersection of two textile streets. So you have some you have some challenges there with modifying those textile roadways for for a more of a you know a town center kind of environment. But they've done I think they've made the the best of the situation there. As far as getting there by by bike, we can get there. We have to. There's some crossings that we have to navigate, um, but it is it is doable. But like a you know a lot of the the suburban communities, we have kind of our neighborhood park that's that's just probably uh, maybe 
five, five blocks from my house and then the elementary school. So, I mean, in our neighborhood, the elementary school and the park are really the center of the the day-to-day neighborhood activity. Um, but we can, you know, if we needed to, you know, to bike into downtown, we, we could, we couldn't walk there. It'd be too, you know, too far of a, of a walk. But at the same time, we haven't, we don't do that a whole lot because it's easier, you know, to hop in and, and drive. And it's, like I said, it's not the easiest ride to make. I could, you know, my wife and I could make it easy. Um, my 14 year old daughter could, could make it at this point. My little guy's five and I wouldn't want him anywhere near it. Um, which is something, you know, we can, we can talk about, but it is, you know, we have a good overall around the community. We've got a good trail system. We also have a mini mountain biking kind of area around Squabble Creek. That's actually closer to my house than downtown (laughs) is. So, yeah, I mean, I I think as, as far as suburban communities go, we're, I'd give us a B in connectivity, but there's a, you know, there's a lot more that we could be doing with some of the strodes and the the dot roadways that, that could be better. And probably the most dangerous to, in this, <laughs> this is terrible, but the most dangerous place to ride a bike is probably right here in my community because the streets are so wide and we don't, it's, it's something I fight. The engineering me fights with a, a lot of cities on is you get these these wider suburban streets that are designed for if you have cars parked on both sides of the street, you know, so that your police and fire and public safety can still get can still get through. Uh, but at the same time, you read the the HOA homeowners association documents, and we don't allow cars to park on the street. So you end up with a really wide straight runway, and cars go screaming through there, and it's just uh, it's it's an adventure that. You know, you, you do still see the, the kids kind of biking and, and walking to the park, but there's also a whole lot of moms I've seen on Nextdoor and some of those apps just saying, you know, I wish the cars would slow down. I, I wish, you know, we, we say this is a safe neighborhood, but it's really not. Yeah, it's that whole concept when you're living in an environment like that. Uh, it <laughs> The hashtag we are traffic is, is very much a part of it because it's all of us, you know, since we live here and it, it's like that inducement of when you have such a wide tarmac, the speeds just creep up. But it sounds like right now during this pandemic, people are feeling the need to get some activity in. They're hitting the streets. They're, you know, appropriately distancing themselves uh, while getting a little bit of activity. So they're they're taking back that environment. and, And clearly the number of motor vehicles are down. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that whole thing shapes up for you. Uh, are there sidewalks on in, in that street or mm-hmm. in that streetscape? Or mm-hmm. okay, so yep. there is we've, a sidewalk. We do have. We've yep. got. Yeah, we've got four foot. Um, there are four foot sidewalks on both sides. Yeah. So clearly un, undersized for the need. Clearly, <laughs> in a, in a pandemic, and really barely appropriate in in normal circumstances. You know, when when you look at uh, that width. So, yeah, interesting. Well, share a little bit about Verdunity. Talk a little bit about the firm, what it is you do, and uh, the origins of the name, because it's a rather interesting name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, first off, I love to be asked about what we do. We're an extremely passionate group, but I'll, um, I'll start with my background. I, I actually started out in civil engineering. I'm an Aggie, so those of you down in Austin don't hold that against me too much. But, And I know you, you, had, um, you had Chuck from Strongtowns on your podcast here recently, I think too, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear some similarities in my background and, and Chuck's, but um, I started in civil, did mostly municipal infrastructure, paving, drainage, water, sewer, kind of, you know, city infrastructure stuff for the first 15 years of my career. In it was right around the, the last recession, 2008. I was uh, given the opportunity to serve as national director of my former firm's planning and urban design practice. And so I, I went from the world of civil engineering where you're taught growth is good, concrete is good, you know, <laughs> factors of safety, over design everything to learning much more about placemaking and context and, you know, just sustainability. At that time, there was a lot of conversation about energy, sustainable, you know, sustainability plans, you know, energy conservation, energy management plans, things like that. But I was over that time, kind of 08, 2008 to 2011, I guess is when I left. I was traveling around the country, working with cities of all different shapes and sizes, you know, on everything from comprehensive plans to strategic plans to, and and working, you know, at the same time with urban designers and architects and and I mean, my, my brain was just exploding with all these questions and, and ideas. But what I started to kind of realize as I was traveling and then I would come back to North Texas, I started to see this theme of no matter where I went, the cities didn't have enough money to pay for their infrastructure. Didn't matter if it was an older city, younger city, urban city, rural, they all had the same issue of we have a ton of streets and we don't have money to pay for it. And that's when I met Chuck was back in 2010. I was trying to figure this out and I stumbled on his blog way back then and reached out and, you know, the, we've, we've been friends ever since. But ultimately that led to 2011 when I decided to leave, um, leave HDR, my former firm. And we started Verdunity back in April 25th will be nine years for us. And the, the, the vision for our firm has always been to, to build sustainable communities where Verdunity came from was we knew when we started, we didn't want to be the typical ABC engineering or ABC planning that you, you know, you see so much of. Um, so we were thinking what could be different. And we had, we knew we wanted to be about green infrastructure. We knew we wanted to be about fiscal sustainability. And so we came up with green, which turned into Verde. And then we knew we wanted to work with communities. We knew we wanted to work towards unity. We, we knew we wanted to have unity as a, as a kind of a key value of our, t- our team. So we, we were at a happy hour one night and we're mashing things up and said, well, what if we took Verde and community and mashed those up into Verdunity? So that's where the name came from. We didn't realize at the time how hard it is to say. It is not something that rolls off the tongue easily. Um, we've heard Verdunity, Verd Unity. We've heard all kinds of different versions and the occasional, you know, 12 year old giggle at, you know, all of the other things that, that it sounds like. But, but since, since we started, we've evolved quite a bit as, and anybody in Texas, I think will appreciate this. We in 2011 were, you know, I had all of these ideas of best practices that I saw from the Portlands, right. And even Austin, in some different places, Boston, some of places like that. And I brought them back to Texas thinking, okay, if I can just show other parts of the country are doing this, I'll be able to get communities to do it. And we just, we ran into a brick wall. It was like, nope, <laughs> we're all about the cars. We're all about the trucks. You know, don't, don't talk to us about biking or complete streets or green infrastructure or any of those things. But we kept at it. We did, you know, we did do some design of, of those types, what I call the right kinds of projects. Early on, we were talking about doing, you know, how do you do the right projects the right way? And we were still kind of, we wanted to do more, 
of those kind of design, really complete streets, active transportation and, and green infrastructure. That was really the kind of the sweet spot for us. But what I realized was to do more of those, there was so much education that was needed as to why, why they're needed, you know, and that, that just kind of started a journey for me into from more of a design person to more of a planning and consulting and an educator. And so, you know, our firm has evolved with that to, you know, now today, what we focus on is using fiscal sustainability as a common language to align cities development patterns with what people are willing and able to pay for. It's a bit of a mouthful, but you know, when you break that down a little bit, there is a resource gap in all of our cities. Chuck probably got, I haven't had a chance to listen to your podcast with him yet, but I know he brought it up because <laughs> he always does. But there's a, there's a big gap between what our current development pattern generates in tax base and wealth and the cost to serve it, namely infrastructure costs. And that's been the closest thing I've found in terms of a, a common language that connect can, that can connect across political ideologies that can bring a lot of different people in a community together to talk about what are things that can keep our property tax rates down that can allow our neighborhoods to grow in value incrementally provide affordable housing options there's a, a you know a ton of benefits to it and so we've we've evolved into we do a lot of comprehensive plans. We do strategic planning workshops with council. We do a lot of community engagement work, but all of that leads to doing the math for cities, showing them the resource gap, and then identifying strategies that can help them close those gaps, which does come back to the way that you close them is, you know, more of the traditional development pattern that we, that we can get into. But I mean, I guess stop there for a second and say that what what COVID has kind of done for me is even even showing quantifying the math and the resource gap and showing, you know, showing the 3D maps that show the how different areas perform in terms of tax productivity and service costs and those things. We've seen an increase in the last couple of years of, of city leadership interested in doing that. But by and large, there's still the large majority of cities in Texas and other states are still loyal to business as usual, right? The, the way that we've done it. What COVID has done is it's just shined, a, just shined a spotlight on the flaws of that business or of that development model. You know, we were just talking about the active, active living and the street design um, and, and, you know, neighborhood activity. We could talk about economic development and the fragility of the, the way that we've been building our, our economic development system in our, in our communities and, and prioritizing the big companies over the local small businesses. But what our, what our analysis has shown is, is kind of that the, the best way to close your resource gap is to build more of the, the neighborhoods where you live in, you know, more compact, more walkable, gridded, grid, narrower gridded streets, emphasize your local small businesses, uh, and, you know, when you do those things, you also start to address affordable housing and and different lifestyle and neighborhood interactions for different generations. And so the opportunity for me with COVID is it has exposed the fiscal flaws. It's a, it's shown environmental flaws. I mean, you, you see the clean air and clean water that's popping up is all of this. It's just, it's exposed the social the social fragility of of everything. But the flip side is it's really, it's also identified or, or helped elevate some of the opportunities with how people experience their neighborhoods and how they're getting around and interacting and what's really, really important 
you know, is it really important to spend 45 minutes commuting each way to and from work and losing that time with your, your kids? Uh, I mean, I've had so many people say, wow, I, you know, I'm getting an extra hour in my day because I'm not doing that commute. Do you have a success story that you can share? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can talk about several, but I, I love to, they're small, but they're, um, they're out here by me. The, the guys from fate Texas are ones that I just, I love to, to talk about them anytime I can, because they're, they're just doing amazing work. They're a small community just East of, of Rockwall. Um, and they, I, I met Michael and Justin, the city manager and, and ACM there probably six or seven years ago. We were talking about strong towns way back then. And, and since that time, uh, we've done a lot of different work from them, from helping out with some comprehensive plan planning, helping out with a code update, doing some fiscal analysis work with them. And it's it's really the last few years has been a, a retainer engagement with us where I, I just I will go help out with occasional council meetings, planning, zoning meetings, do some some development review for them for for different projects. But the overall trajectory for them, their community has been they didn't really understand anything about fiscal sustainability and thought, you know, the the business as usual model was was great to a complete a complete shift of, you know, 180 to now they're, they're focusing everything, their, their council meetings, their PNZ, even their community is starting to talk about things like value per acre and the importance, you know, how narrower streets can slow the cars down. And so those guys, they use things, the, the hashtags like hashtag slow the cars, they'll use those in their city communication. And it's, you know, it's been amazing to see the transformation of their community over the last five years from a place that didn't know anything about these things and was just building cookie cutter suburban neighborhoods as fast as you could build them to now they've they've put up some walls and they're they're really fighting to keep the unproductive stuff out. They're they're prioritizing the the key land that they have left to get some high, some really high value walkable mixed use development in there. Um, so they're they're one that I would speak to. Um, Bastrop down by you um, is another where I think on CNU circles some of our some of our people I'm sure have read uh, about the code the new uh, B3 code that they adopted a, a few months ago. We were brought in Verdunity was brought in last year before the code to do a fiscal analysis a fiscal model where we we did all the the number crunching and the maps for them to show how the whole city was, was performing fiscally. And what we found was just to replace their streets, they needed about 144 million. I think it was $144 million to replace just the streets that they had on the ground at that time. And so it came out to about 7 million a year and they were spending, I, I want to say six or 700,000 a year on streets. And so it, it was a big aha for council and for the city leadership to say, okay, you know, we have this funding gap. What are we going to do to change it? And, you know, mayor, the mayor there, mayor Connie, I like to call her mayor Connie, Connie Schrader. She said at the end of, at the end of that fiscal process, that our models and conversations or our models and, and analytics gave them abil the ability to make good decisions instead of good old boy decisions. And so that that fiscal analysis really set the standard across the entire community that that, hey, we have a resource gap. This is something I'll talk with a lot of cities about. If you really have three options, keep the development pattern the way it is and they have to raise they have to raise costs, um, they have to raise costs, raise taxes, or they can keep the tax rate and the service costs where they are and they're going to have to cut services. That's really what most cities are doing now. You know, when you think of, of a capital improvement plan. 
And then the the third one is, which is where we try to steer people is change your development model and your infrastructure design and your funding structure all together to to align with what your people are, are willing and able to pay for. And Bastrop and Fade are two really good examples that have really embraced that. And they've started to drive that through their policy of adopting the codes and changing their infrastructure design, you know, and their their decisions, their daily decisions towards, you know, towards that goal. So those are two that I really like to talk with or talk to. Um, there's others, Brownsville, Texas, Pflugerville. There, there's a number of them that we've worked with that are, that are using the fiscal analysis as a, as an entry point to having the broader conversation with their, their community. And then what's been really interesting these last few weeks is now, now I'm getting a lot more calls from more city managers, um, not just in Texas, but around the country that this resource gap idea that, I mean, I talked with one guy, sorry, one guy last week and he basically said, you know, I first, I heard strong towns and I heard you guys talking about a couple of years ago and I thought you were full of crap. And he's like, oh, I didn't believe it. You know, didn't, but now with this COVID stuff, he, he's like, you know, we do, we, we have a resource gap. He's like, I'm scared. You know, our property tax is going to stagnate. Our sales tax is disappearing. People's ability to, to pay is going away. So we can't really issue more debt because they can't, they're not going to support it. And he's like, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Yeah, there, there's an opportunity here to look at the flaws in what we've been doing and then look, ask our communities and, and listen a little more to what is really important. And, you know, I think it's, it's going to fall in the laps of, of these elected officials. There's an opportunity here. I, I hope that places will make some pretty big, bold policy changes, policy decisions to steer us in a different direction and then start with a whole bunch of small, you know, little implementation things to, you know, just kind of incrementally work our way forward. Because uh, I don't think we're going to get out of this, you know, in six months or a year like, like some people do. After this very brief intermission, Kevin addresses his active mobility wishes and dreams for his children, the business trends he's seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic, and how doing things at the local level, the neighborhood level, can have profound impacts on the community and society. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. That really helps a lot. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do share it within your networks. I do need to pause now to say thank you to our Patreon supporters and donors. As an extremely low-budget 501c3 nonprofit, each and every contribution, regardless of how small, helps more than you will ever know. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to Kevin. Yeah, and... It's a different time, right? I mean, we're, we're now in a situation that is is challenging the notion that, hey, there's money coming in, we're growing, the, the economy is booming. You were experiencing something where you were starting to resonate with them, having that discussion about fiscal health and the disconnect between the current development pattern and saying, hey, guys, this doesn't pay for itself. And let me do the numbers for you. And let me reinforce using sort of the the strong towns as the backdrop and uh, a lot of the fiscal work that Joe Minicozzi has, has perfected in, in his firm and all that. And you guys are modeling similar types of things for that, demonstrate to them. And then you start working on these changes, these tweaks, like with Fate, like with uh, Bastrop, 
of changes to the code, which really equates to future development. It doesn't change anything about like what's on the ground already. It doesn't help with the, the current challenge of the fiscal nature and what needs to happen. But at least, you know, for those cities and for other cities that are now suddenly having this epiphany of oh my gosh we're this isn't this isn't going to work now how all this comes back around to active towns is as follows it's about the land development code it's about the land development pattern it's about our built environment and this built environment that doesn't pay for itself isn't fiscally healthy also isn't physically healthy for us as individuals because because or or environmentally healthy it, you know it's it's a pattern that is dependent upon the automobile and driving everywhere for everything longer distances it pushes the the development pattern further and further out horizontal expansion versus a traditional development pattern of a village, a town, a city that grows up incrementally, that grows up, you know, thickening its, uh, its housing and business and commercial areas. So that's what we're talking about. And the reason why active towns and strong towns and active towns and the Congress for the new urbanism, why we're so interlaced is that that connection between our built environment, our cities, our communities really help encourage healthy, active living if we can get around under our own power. If it's an environment where it's safe and inviting for all ages and abilities to be able to get to meaningful destinations, like a school, like a corner market, like, you know, the park, et cetera, like you being able to, with your five-year-old, get from your front door to your village center comfortably on a bicycle. I've heard it described as the popsicle test. You know, can your can your kiddo hop on a bike and go get a popsicle and come back without you worrying about them? Yeah, and absolutely. You know, there's so many communities that <laughs> that's a really quick nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of my questions for you, you sort of already answered, which is, what are you seeing from your client base or your potential client base in response to COVID-19? Yeah, I, you know, I think I, do, I, I think this this resource, this resource gap thing is definitely um, on the minds of more of more city managers and, and more city leaders. Just in the last three or four weeks, it's it's evolved a lot from the first I've been reaching out to quite a few of them, current current clients and, you know, and, and potential and early on, it was like, well, you know, we think we're going to be okay. We know there's going to be a blip, but we're going to be okay. And then it was like, well, it's going to hurt us for a while. We've got reserves. We can get through it. And now it, it is starting to, you know, I was just talking with, with somebody yesterday from a, a central Texas community. And he's like, you know, we have no idea what we're going to do for budgeting because we, we go into budgeting, which every city is doing right now, right? We're, we're at the time, at least if you're on the October 1 fiscal year, which a, a lot of communities in Texas at least are, um, you're at that mid-year point where you just got your sales tax you know, and property tax stuff in. And so you, you're looking at how can we, how can we adjust for the rest of this fiscal year? And then the process to plan for next fiscal year is starting. And, you know, the, the initial response is, well, let's go back to 2008 and look at that recession and how things worked. And we're going to kind of plan for that. But everybody's starting to realize that 
that's not going to work because this is this is going to hit you know on on multiple levels and last uh last a lot longer so there is a there's definitely a conversation happening about you know we're we're going to be you know we're going to we're going to have fewer resources in our community for sure what do we do about that beyond you know you you can you can furlough or cut staff you can cut some services you know there's there's the usual things that city will cities can do but when it has to be deeper cuts than that what is what does that look like that's the first question that i think is on city managers minds right now is is what are we going to cut how are you know how are we going to make these decisions and then the second part of that is as you start to work your way out of this and rebuild how do you do that and I'm, you know, I'm saying pretty, I I wrote down kind of four, four things that I wanted to mention. Um, The first thing that we talk about is just take stock and listen. So ask your community what, you know, what their experience has been, ask your local businesses, ask your residents, what is your, what has your experience been both good and bad? You know, what do you, what do you miss? What have you enjoyed about this situation And, and look for what's the middle, you know, what's the best path forward? Don't just revert back to the, the way that we were doing it before. The second thing, and this was a message, I I mean, these are the same things I was talking about before COVID. It's just a little different framing of it. But the second is to do your math. If you, if you can't quantify your resource gap and communicate it to your council and your community, then you're, you know, you have no basis really for your, all the decisions you're making in a city. You're just kind of randomly going towards things that you think may be right, but they're actually bankrupting your, your city over, over time. So getting that, initial assessment done either at a high level or, or a very detailed level, depending on who you are and, and how far you want to go there. Then the policy changes. I, I think, you know, there are, you mentioned a second ago, John, that some of these are big things of land use and zoning, you know, and street, your your subdivision design standards, things that engineers and planners will get into. But there are some, some policy changes that I think need to be made to shift your development pattern and your economic development uh, and then the fourth, the fourth thing is just the incremental changes. And this is where I think we've evolved a bit as a firm from instead of, instead of where we used to try to get more of the bigger design projects. Now we really, you know, I I've accepted that, that resource constraints are going to be here for a really long time. And at the same time, the, the things that you can do to, to make things better in neighborhoods don't have to cost a lot of money. And so I, I think that's the the opportunity here is look at look at what's happened with COVID and how we've converted some of these streets to to trails and to bike lanes and to more linear parks, you know, and and what are things like that that we can do that are smaller, that cost less, that are more uh, more collaborative, you know, in nature between your your citizens and your businesses and your community. That's a big trust building. There's a huge trust building element to tactical projects of you know, hey, we're going to try this and we're going to throw our resources in together. And if it doesn't work, great. If it does work, then we can spend more money to to make it more permanent. So that just every plan we do, every project we're doing pre-COVID and, and now coming out of this is going to be based on those four elements of just, you know, ask and listen and observe what's working and what isn't. Doing your math and quantifying that resource gap and make make everything in your city around how do we close that gap. And then the, the big policy changes that need to, and that's where the political will is going to come into play. Just you got to change the rules of the game for some of these developers and some of the companies if you really want to build a, a unique, resilient place um, and then do as much of the, the, the implementation incrementally as you can. 
And it seems as if there's a sort of a, a, a twofold approach, as you mentioned. It's, it's you've got to stop the bleeding, stop doing what you've been doing, which is demonstrated through this fiscal analysis as being a financial drain on your system. Oh, and by the way, it's also a system that uh, compromises the health and well-being of your residents and, and your visitors because it is something that creates a hostile environment out there in the community. It's it's very car-oriented. It, it prioritizes high speeds. But what can we do now? And that's where, as you mentioned, those tactical little things. Yeah. Well, and to just kind of build on what you were just saying, John, I, I think, you know, the, the a block of an, a block or two of a neighborhood street is a place I, I really love to, to focus on because you can, on the, the math side of it, I can show the, the cost of a, you know, a 31 foot wide street and say, just if you narrowed this down four feet, you know, to a 27 or a 24 foot street, here's the amount of money that you would save. And then you get at the quality of life and the safety element. And you talk with the moms that will say, well, I hate, you know, my, my kids can't ride or bike on the street because the cars are driving 50 miles an hour. Well, they're driving 50 miles an hour because there's nothing, there's no cars parked on the side of the street. There's, you know, it's, it's long straight runways with minimal intersections and you can show them if you can narrow the street down, if you can provide more, you know, more, more physical distractions, then you force, you know, you force the driver to pay attention more. And so they will drive, they will drive slower, you know, and then you start to connect those things together and get people to think about the outcomes of quality of life. And what's really important is you are in your neighborhood to be able to bike. You know, if you can't bike and walk safely around your own neighborhood, you're not going to be able to do it anywhere. And, you know, if you can't, if your kids can't bike or walk, you know, a few blocks to the neighborhood park, I mean, what's the point, right? If mom or dad has to throw the kids in the back of the car just to drive them to the park, that's crazy. Um, and so you, you, I mean, in a community meeting or a charrette or, or any of these kind of, you know, situations that we're in, I love to kind of break the conversation down at this, at that level, because you start to see mom or dad or teenager or grandma, whoever it is. And they, they just have this look on their face of one of those angles, the fiscal one, the quality of life one, the safety one, one of them will hit them right between the eyes. And they're like, what the heck are we doing? And then, you know, then you can have really meaningful conversations about, okay, well, how could we change this? And then all of these benefits, John, just open up of look at the environmental benefits, look at the social benefits, look at the affordable housing. I mean, all these other things that people are so, you know, their, their initial reaction is to say no to or their initial response is to say no to. It, it all starts at the neighborhood level. And if we can break it down to that local street and how do you bike or walk to the park? How do you bike or walk to get your daily needs? I mean, how great would it be in today's environment if more of us could bike or walk to the grocery store? you know, or to the, just the corner store and get some of those basic needs instead of having to hop in your car and sit in a 30 minute line at Costco waiting for your turn to, you know, to, to go. I just think we've kind of lost what quality of life really means. And this whole COVID thing is getting people to kind of, you know, I, I read an article actually earlier this morning that the guy was, he was calling this the great pause, just stop and just reevaluate everything that's going on and say what really matters. I think a lot of people are, are really thinking differently about their life and what quality of life means and what they're going to be able to pay for and what cities are going to be able to pay to provide in the, in the future. What has surprised you the most about this? What a trend that has surprised you most? Ooh, that's a great question. Ah, 
I think the very first thing I saw that just kind of made me go, wow, were some of the, the environmental pictures of like the clean air in L.A. and the clean water in Venice and just how fast that mess got cleaned up. And it does make you think, I mean, we won't go climate change here, but I was like, oh, my goodness. If any of us advocating for green infrastructure and sustainable transportation and clean air and clean water, I mean, we got a case study now. You know, is it realistic to expect life is going to go on with this many cars off the road? No. But at the same time, I mean, look at look at what happened. It's just a it's amazing. I think the the ways people are out there using their streets. You know, I've seen some pictures of people putting up like temporary like tennis nets and playing tennis in the street and soccer and kickball. And it, I mean, it reminded me of how how I grew up. I mean, I, I have conversations with my kids all the time where I find myself saying, I wish you could grow up the way I did. Some version of that sentence of playing kickball in the street. But the environmental thing is probably the most surprising thing that that I've I've seen. The not surprising, if you're going to ask me that, the not surprising thing has just been how fast the sales tax focused states and cities have wanted to bring back. We got to get the economy going. You know, they're, they're not, they're not doing it because they want to, you know, the jobs and all that they're doing it because the fiscal health of their agency depends on that sales tax money. The cities or the states that were fighting the quarantine thing the hardest it was the ones that are, you know, more dependent on sales tax. I think, John, you and I first met through, it was either through a Strong Towns event or, or CNU event, but, you know, the, the trails and the active transportation is something that, that we advocate for a lot and want to design, you know, more of. And, you know, when, I, I don't remember if that's one of the things I hit earlier when just talking about the, when we do our fiscal analysis and we look at development patterns that are very fiscally productive, meaning that they they bring in significantly more property tax or sales tax revenue than they cost to serve. When we look at the places that do well, it's the traditional pattern, it's the walkable, it's the walkable neighborhoods, it's the, you know, it's the 1950s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s neighborhoods that smaller lots you know, and, and that, that are walkable and safe because they are narrower streets and, and everything was designed and built with the intent of people walking and biking around in there. And, and so it's the flip of that is I would guess your neighborhood is very difficult to drive to get around quickly by car. Yeah, it is. It's it's essentially a yield street, which is so narrow that uh, if two cars are approaching from opposite directions and, and people are parked on the street, which is encouraged because it is a traffic slowing mechanism, a traffic calming mechanism, having cars parked on the street. Uh, yeah, it, 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 they have to figure out who's going to go. And so there's a little bit of neighborliness just trying to figure out, well, who, who gets to, to go through that narrow space. And since there are no sidewalks in our neighborhood, uh, it's also a shared space. And so there's pedestrians and, and people riding bikes and on scooters and kids being pushed in, in strollers in the middle of the street. So yeah, it's, it's a different environment. Well, and those, but those are the ones that, you know, they hit home runs fiscally for a community as well. And, you know, the, the demographic shifts that are happening, whether it's the old folks or the, the young, the younger ones um, coming out of school now, there's more of a demand and interest in those types of neighborhoods. And so in Texas, that's going to be really interesting 
you know, for us, because we have an overabundance of the suburban neighborhoods. We don't have near enough of where you live. And so the places like where you live are extremely expensive right now to, to get into, which, you know, so we need much, much more of that. And, but we're, you know, we're moving, I think we're moving in that, that direction with getting the policies and the codes changed to, you know, to support some of that, the, I'm seeing more cities push back on the, you know, the, the builders and developers will say, we're just building what the market wants, meaning more big suburban stuff. And that's just, that's crap. That's not true. They're building what their models allow them to build quickly and efficiently and make money at. But, you know, the, the other aspect of kind of active living that, that is fiscally, makes a lot of sense fiscally, socially, and environmentally is the green infrastructure component and designing parks and open spaces in a way that you're not sticking a detention pond behind a building just to manage the stormwater. You're actually treating the open space as a, as a, an amenity, as an aesthetic, you know, as a public space to, you know, to experience. And there's some additional upfront cost to do something like that, to, you know, to put a quality open space in and, you know, have it be a dual function, stacked function, green infrastructure, you know, type of, of project. But long-term it's, you know, it creates more value in place and, you know, and makes you and saves you money, you know, down the, down the road. So I like to see more of that as well, you know, more strategically when we'll do a, a city's comp plan, we will look at the the open space and, and active transportation elements as a way of, you know, not just where's the ideal place to put the park or the open space or the trails, but where can you do it in a way that, that would make economic sense as well in terms of providing added value to businesses, maybe with that, maybe that's with outdoor seating or, you know, a, a park, you know, pocket, a pocket park or something that the businesses can all, you know, be located around or something like that. So it's not just the, it's not just the street infrastructure that we're talking about, but it's also the natural kind of the natural spaces as well. I think we can design and plan, plan those in a way that's does better from a fiscal perspective, does better from an environmental perspective. And then socially is a, is a big social and, and health wise is a big benefit and amenity for the community as well. For folks who are listening to this that may want to make a difference in their community, help encourage their city to be an active town and a strong town and a town, a city that is really firing on all cylinders. What advice would you have for, for that person that's not in a professional role? Um, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think, I mean, those of us on the professional side always, and even I think those that, that work in local government would say this too, that getting the community engaged is, has always been hard. You know, people will show up with energy to fight something and say no, but to come in and support something that you want, it's the apathy is, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to get people to, to show up and, and advocate for something that you want. So that's the simplest thing is just walk or bike or drive if you have to, to your city hall and just, just get in, get involved. I, I would say, you know, if you can rally around an issue, if it's, you know, biking or if it's safety in your neighborhood, whatever the issue is, you know, look around your neighborhood and find some other people that, that share your opinion. I, I think just getting out and, and just asking some people what they, what they think about it. I think you'll find, especially at the neighborhood level, there's a lot of people that share your same, your same views. And 
what I'm seeing with the work that we're doing is when we're able to connect with those folks and ask the second question of not, not just the first question of like, Oh, we're going to fix your street or we're going to put a trail in, but go one level deeper of why we're doing it. I, I think that that's when some great conversations happen at the, at the local level of someone that initially might, I'm trying to think of how to flip this to, to them. I, I might say, you know, think about, Think about outcomes. Think about the way, what's your values and what's really important to your neighborhood and your lifestyle. And then look out the window and say, what, what is keeping me from getting that? And in the neighborhood scale, it's, it's going to come back to the street design in a, in a nine out of 10 times, it's going to come to the street design. And there's a, there's a belief inside city hall that our communities want the wider streets to provide for safety and access and move track traffic quicker. But when you dig down a level, I think what they want is safe streets and they want active living and that requires a completely different design. So I, I, I would say number one, just get, get involved, go to your city hall, ask about committees that are and things that are happening around things that are important to you ask your neighbors about, you know, what kind of challenges you know, or, or things get them excited and, and kind of join together. The bigger your group is, the bigger voice you're going to have at city hall. And then the, you know, the beauty of the interwebs <laughs> now is there's so many resources out there, like a strong towns, like an active towns, like Verdunity, like go cultivate our podcast and many, many others. The way to get the change that we're all out there seeking is to ultimately get the residents more involved. You know, we, with Verdunity and, and Go Cultivate, we talk about cultivating a culture of collaboration. And one of the things I'll say in my talks is that, that every resident and every business has time, talent, and or treasure that they want to contribute. They just don't know how or where or if it'll be reciprocated. And so our job as professionals is to really take that next, that, that extra, nextra, I just combine next and extra into a word, take that nextra step. Um, to just to kind of just engage at a deeper level with the residents about what they really want and what they really need. And then when we get to, you know, to doing that, I think it's incremental and tactical, which we can turn right around and, and give those residents a role to play in that, you know, and when, when you're helping to put something on the ground, when it's right there in your neighborhood, you care more, you're more invested, you pay attention more, you communicate better. And so I, I, I think, you know, getting just, it all starts at the, at the city level. We've got to listen better. We got to ask better questions. We got to listen more to the residents. And then the, the last kind of challenge I would give to the residents is don't, or to the citizens, you know, implementers, as we like to call them is, you know, don't just show up and complain about something offer to be part of the solution. So be, be willing to get your hands dirty or contribute, you know, time, talent, or treasure to making that solution happen. Yeah. Yeah. And if I were to amplify something that you, you kind of said in there and, and had embedded in that message is start having discussions with your, your neighbors, have these discussions with your neighbors and just then take it that next step that you were just talking about was, well, what do we do from here? Who do we talk with? And, and then talk about engagement and getting together with folks and reaching out to other organizations that are potential uh, resources for for tools yeah. and concepts. I, I like to describe it a little bit as a, as a sandwich where we have all the stuff in the middle of planning and design and codes and all those technical things that, that are happening. 
but at the highest level of a city, we haven't we haven't gotten it right about what's most important. Meaning, if you can't pay the bills, you know, and if you're killing the you know if you're killing the the environment, um, and you have social you know social issues, that's a problem. And then at the at the community at the citizen level, we're not we're not engaging the the community at the in the right way. And so for a, for a policymaker, for an elected official, I absolutely start with the money and fiscal sustainability because that's what they're not thinking about. But at the resident level, it's all about quality of life. How can you make your quality of life better? What's the next small thing that we could do to make it better? And then if, if we can get those two conversations and happening better, all of us in the professional community will, will make that sandwich better, but we need to, we need to improve the, the buns or the bread <laughs> or, or the lettuce, whatever, whatever you put on the outside of your sandwich. Very good. Hey, how can folks find you out there on the interwebs? Verdunity.com, V-E-R-D-U-N-I-T-Y. The Go Cultivate podcast is a, a really good place as, as well. And then um, my social media stuff is a little tricky. My, my Twitter is K underbar Shepherd, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Or just at, at Verdunity. You know, that's the easiest place. At Verdunity on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all, all of those. Fantastic. Kevin, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch up. It's uh, good to see you, man. Stay well. You know, it's honestly been quite difficult to produce this episode with everything that's going on right now. So thank you so very much for listening. Many of you may be attending the Congress for the New Urbanism, CNU 28, a virtual gathering next week. Hit me up if you'd like to join me on the Active Towns podcast for a brief reflection as I open up some free-form studio time. Also, if you'd like to attend the conference, it's not too late to sign up. Just go to cnu.org for more information. And as a fun event announcement, please join Victor Dover, Mike Lighton, Grayson Johnson, and me as we host our annual Running with the Urbanist Fun Runs on Thursday and Friday mornings. That's June 11th and 12th, respectively. If you're out on Facebook, look up the Active Towns event pages we created for more information to follow along and share photos and video. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or suggestions. It's always so wonderful to hear from you. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. Please take care of yourselves and let's all strive to tear down the walls between us and take better care of each other. Until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.